Well, as Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples to take the gospel into Jerusalem, into Judea and Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the world. And guess what? They did. In fact, this becomes an outline for the book of Acts. Chapters 1 through 6 discuss the church in Jerusalem. Chapters 7 through 12 describe how the gospel branched out into the surrounding neighborhoods, Judea and Samaria. And then in chapters 13 through 28, we're shown how Paul took the gospel into the uttermost parts of the world. In fact, all the way to Rome, the capital of the empire. Paul embarked on three different missionary ventures, church planning ventures. In chapter 21, our text tonight, he's on his last lap. He's in the midst of his third expedition. He's just left the Ephesian elders on the beach there at Miletus, and he's headed to Jerusalem. His desire is to arrive by the Feast of Pentecost. He's going to get there by late spring. Let me comment just a moment about Paul's travels. You know, the Apostle Paul crossed majestic mountains. He strolled along Mediterranean beaches. He walked the marble streets and he viewed the colossal buildings of the world's most magnificent cities. Paul witnessed natural beauty and architectural wonders. In fact, Paul could have described enough landscapes and seascapes and cityscapes to fill a travel brochure that would make the most avid tourist salivate. Yet, if you scan Paul's letters, if you read Luke's accounts of his travels, you'll never find a verbal postcard. In fact, not a single line of Paul's writings is wasted on pointing to his physical surroundings. Why? Because his focus was not on the beaches or the buildings, but on the Lord that he served and on the souls that needed to be saved. On the road to Damascus, Paul was blinded by a bright light and by the glory of Jesus. And for the rest of his life, he remained blind to anything else but the Lord and his gospel. In fact, that's a blindness that we all should emulate. Well, chapter 21 begins. Now, it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to cause the following day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. Now here's a, where a map would be helpful. In fact, we've got one for you. These are all port cities on what is today southwestern Turkey. Paul and his entourage, they were skipping along the coast looking for passage on a larger ship that would cross the Mediterranean and get them to Israel. And they found such a ship sailing over to Phoenicia. We went aboard and we set sail. Now, Phoenicia is modern-day Lebanon, just north of the border to Israel. This was a good ship. This was a place Paul could, they could board and they could get to their destination. And when we had sighted Cyprus, this is in voyage, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. Isn't it interesting? Paul didn't wait on a first-class cabin on a carnival cruise. Apparently, he hitched a ride on a freighter, on a cargo ship. You see, his passion was who he could reach, not how he could roll. When the ship docked in Tyre, it had carried Paul 400 miles across the Mediterranean, under the island of Cyprus, and 
to the shores of Phoenicia. Verse 4. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. Now, I'm sure that Paul was tired when he finally reached Tyre. But notice how he recharges his batteries. He doesn't isolate himself. He doesn't shut down. Rather, he finds some disciples. Hey, never underestimate the renewing power of fellowship. Hey, just hanging out with other believers is good for the soul. It has a strategic effect even upon a hearty believer like Paul. But pay close attention to verse 4. Notice the phrase, finding disciples. In the original language, it meant an extensive search. Paul had gone out of his way to locate the local believers. He had to find fellowship. It didn't just come to him. And this is what you might have to do to find meaningful fellowship in your life, on your college campus, or on your high school campus, or maybe in your neighborhood, or even in your church. You know, it takes nothing to attend church, but you have to find fellowship. You have to take some initiative. You have to search it out. You have to move outside your comfort zone and rub shoulders with some other people in order to find where you fit, to find your niche. You know, it's so funny to me. Talk to some people who attend our church. They've been coming for weeks, and they've made all kinds of connections, and they'll tell you that our church is the friendliest church on the planet. Yet there are other folks who've been coming not just for weeks, but for months, maybe years, and they still feel like a stranger. They complain that this is an unfriendly church. And yet, in most cases, the difference? Those who plugged in went out to find disciples, whereas those who haven't plugged in set back to be found. Hey, Paul went out to find disciples. But those disciples he found had a message for Paul, verse 4. They told Paul, through the Spirit, not to go up to Jerusalem. New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce, he translates through the Spirit as under prophetic inspiration. The Holy Spirit spoke. Earlier in Acts 19, verse 21, we're told Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And yet here the Holy Spirit throws up a stop sign. What gives? The question arrives, was Paul obedient or disobedient in going to Jerusalem? And to me, the answer is clear. I have no idea. I really don't. And I'm not alone. The Bible commentators here are divided. Good men line up on both sides. Hey, next week, we're going to talk more about how God's will works out in our lives. But if you've been a Christian for long, I'm sure you realize that discerning God's will is not always an exact science. Our vision can get murky, can it not? And yet Paul's life demonstrates that if we're sincere, God is faithful. And God will eventually get us where we need to be. Well, verse 5 continues. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. Again, he's going to board a boat and head on in his journey, but first he's consoled by the believers that he's found 
in this place. Obviously, these Phoenicians, they saw that Paul was determined to press on, even despite their warnings. So it's interesting to me how they approach him. Rather than judge him, rather than argue with him, rather than refuse to support him just because he disagreed with them, notice they loved Paul and they prayed for him. Hey, how do you react to people who disagree with you? You believe God's will is to turn right. They believe God's will is to turn left. Do you disagree and break fellowship? Or do you love them? And do you pray for them just as the believers entire prayed for Paul? Hey, I'm sure they saw that Paul's intentions were good and they trusted God to leading God their friend as well. Well, when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. Now, Ptolemaeus was the ancient name for the Israeli port of Akko, nine miles north of Haifa. And notice, again, Paul finds fellowship, if just for a day. And then on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist. Caesarea is 30 miles south of Akko. Notice they're working their way down the coast. Paul is eventually headed to Jerusalem. Caesarea was the headquarters of the Roman governor there in Israel. And if you've ever been with us to Caesarea, you know why Philip chose to live there. It is an absolutely gorgeous place. It's a beautiful seaside town. The sky and the water are the bluest blue. It's an incredible place to stay, to visit, and I'm sure to live. And Paul, we're told, entered the house of Philip, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now, Paul's host while in Caesarea was Philip. Philip appears three times in the book of Acts. In chapter 6, he was, quote, one of the seven, or the first deacons there in Jerusalem. In chapter 8, he leads a revival in Samaria and an Ethiopian to Christ. And now in chapter 21, we find him living in Caesarea with his four faithful daughters. Verse 9. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Notice Philip's girls were sexually pure and they were spiritually sensitive. You know, most dads have to constantly remind their daughters of God's will. Philip's daughters were always speaking God's will to him and the church. They were prophesying. What a guy this Philip. Think of him for a moment. He was a servant in the church, an evangelist to the lost, and he was a dad to his daughters. And you know, this is the mark of a great man. Can he juggle the balls in the church, at home, in the world? Is he faithful in all three arenas? Philip was. You know, some guys, they do well in the world, but they fail at home and they neglect their church. Or other fellows, they serve the church and safeguard their home, but they have no witness in the world. But what made Philip such a great man was that he excelled at all three. It's been said, we come into the world head first, we leave feet first, and in between, it's all a matter of balance. Well, Philip was just that. He lived a blessed and a balanced life. Paul says, and as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. 
We met Agabus earlier in chapter 11, verse 28, where he predicted a famine. Now he comes to prophesy concerning Paul. And notice here in two verses, we learn that in the New Testament, there were both prophets and prophetesses. Agabus was a prophet. Philip's girls, they were the prophetesses. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, and he bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. That's pretty emphatic. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, now you remember from the Old Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, prophets often used visual aids to deliver their message. Boy, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they were great examples. Remember Jeremiah, he buried a sash to illustrate a point. Ezekiel, he laid on his side. Then he dug a hole in his house. They did strange things in order to illustrate their messages. Well, here Agabus also goes theatrical. He grabs Paul's belt and he turns it into handcuffs. He says there's an arrest in Paul's future if he goes on to Jerusalem. Notice twice now, God the Holy Spirit has warned Paul of the danger awaiting him in Jerusalem. Now when he had heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. The church in Caesarea, they join in. Paul, don't go. There's danger ahead. But notice Paul's response. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Wow. For a sold-out Paul, it was Jerusalem or bust, baby. Nothing was going to persuade him otherwise, not even the threat of death. He was ready to lay down his life for the sake of Jesus if necessary. Congress, Congressman Steve Largent, he tells the story of leaving his office one afternoon to walk across the street to the Capitol. As he was walking, he noticed a group of Secret Service agents lining the sidewalk. He asked one of them what was going on. Well, it turns out that the King of Morocco was in town for a meeting with the President. And because the King traveled with such a large entourage, including his 12 wives, by the way, it took a whole lot of secret agents to safeguard his visit. In fact, the king of Morocco travels with his own personal organ donor. Can you imagine? The man is a perfect donor match for the king. So if the monarch just happens to become sick or gets injured or needs a transplanted liver or heart or kidney, guess what? The donor steps in. He's the man on the spot. Apparently, this man is willing to lay down his life for his king. And this was also what Paul was willing to do. This was his role. This was his job. He wasn't just willing to be cuffed for Christ. He was willing to die if necessary. Remember, Paul was blind to every other concern but Jesus. Verse 14. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, The will of the Lord be done. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. And here again, we see how difficult and subjective it can be to discern God's will. Notice here, a prophet, Agabus, and an apostle, Paul, can't even agree. Agabus says, no, Paul wants to go. 
Yeah, here's a lesson for you and me. What happens when you disagree with someone over God's will in a situation? Especially someone in authority. What do you do when your pastor or your boss or your husband or your parent makes a determination concerning God's will? And it affects you, but you disagree. Well, see, Paul's pals had the right approach. Yes, they disagreed with their leader. They even verbalized their disagreement. Yet when he failed to take their advice, they trusted God to guide him. And they followed him. In fact, they even helped him pack. For some of us, this is a tough pill to swallow. Reminds me of the hand dryer in the employee's restroom. Above it, some disgruntled worker had written the following words on the wall. For a message from the boss, press the button. Think about it, you'll get it above the hand dryer. Apparently there was some bitterness in the camp. And it would have been easy for bitterness to develop in Paul's pals. Hey, it's no problem being a follower until the leader takes a path you don't want to travel. I had a respected friend of mine once say, it's not really submission until you disagree. Understand, I'm not talking about a decision that's unbiblical or that's immoral or that's unethical. These are easy choices. When faced with such a decision, you follow the right principle, not the person. What I'm talking about are the more subjective, amoral issues in life. What do you do when your pastor or your husband or your boss or your parents choose a path that you're not so sure about? In fact, they even want you to carry some of the baggage. I mean, the consequences of their decision are bound to affect you. What do you do? Well, notice, here's what Paul's pals did. First, they recognized that Paul's intentions were good. Yes, he was hard-headed, but nobody doubted that he was soft-hearted. He was big-hearted. He was determined to go to Jerusalem because of his love for Jesus and his love for the Jews. Second, they didn't trust Paul necessarily, but they trusted God to guide Paul. This is important. Rather than just abandon the ship just because they disagreed with the leader, they remembered who it was who was steering the leader of the ship. On the road to Damascus, God had knocked Paul off his high horse. He could do it again. Their God was bigger than their leader, and they didn't forget it. God has ways of steering a leader, even when the leader's listening gets a little dull. And then notice third, they kept the comma. Oh, they kept the comma. Read verse 14 without the first comma. We ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. In in other words, oh, we're just wasting our breath arguing with Paul. Thankfully, that wasn't their attitude. No, they kept the comma. They said, we ceased our arguing and our debating. We ceased. And then we said, the will of the Lord be done. They, they ceased arguing, and they gave Paul the benefit of the doubt. They kept the comma in place, and they maintained a good attitude. Well, notice verse 16. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. 
It was a 65-mile trek across land now from Caesarea up to Jerusalem. Now, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. You remember James? He was the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, and he was the leader of the church. And all the elders were present. And when we had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. They rejoiced with Paul over the good work that God had done among the Gentiles. But they rejoiced with one caveat. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. Now the church leaders in Jerusalem, they appreciated the freedom that the Gentiles enjoyed. They understood that a right standing with God is obtained and maintained by faith in Jesus, not the deeds of the law. But there were Jewish believers who were leaning toward legalism. In fact, this was the purpose of the book of Hebrews. It proved to Jewish believers that Jesus was superior to Judaism, that faith is superior to the law. And James warns Paul that not everyone is enjoying the freedom that you've advocated. Not everyone holds your opinion. Verse 21, But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Now the opinion they had formed about Paul was based on erroneous information. What they believed about him wasn't true. Paul had never prohibited Jews from circumcising their boys, nor did he advocate abandoning Jewish custom. If a Jew wanted to maintain his Jewishness, then fine. Paul just pointed out that adherence to the law and Jewish custom had nothing to do with being right with God. That was about grace, not the works of the law. Paul championed grace, yet he had been branded an enemy of Judaism. And James knows that Paul is headed for a showdown with these staunch legalistic Jews, the Jewish hierarchy. In fact, he predicts it in verse 22. He says, what then? The assembly or the Sanhedrin, that Jewish Supreme Court that tried and condemned Jesus, they'll certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. James knows what's coming, a showdown with the Sanhedrin. But his response to this showdown is a bit questionable. He says, therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Now, James suggests that a way for Paul to show the Jews that he's still supportive of their customs, of their traditions, is for him to participate in this vow. Four men were scheduled to enter the temple and take a vow. And here's how it might have worked. They had taken some time off from their employment. They entered the temple and they shaved their head as a pledge to God. Now, over the duration of the vow, the two weeks or three weeks or four weeks or two months that followed, their hair would grow back. So that at the conclusion of that duration, their vow, 
they would re-enter the temple, they would shave their heads again, and this time they would offer the hair that had grown back to God as a sacrifice. James suggests that Paul support these four vow takers financially while they're out of work, while they're participating in this vow, and that Paul even participate in the ritual with them. In doing so, Paul would be saying to the Jews that he's not opposed to their customs and to their rituals. In James's mind, this is simply a tip of the hat to Jewish custom, to Judaism. It wasn't a big deal. It wasn't a compromise of the gospel to the Gentiles. And apparently, Paul agreed. You remember in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20, there Paul wrote, To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. In other words, Paul could become all things to all men. Paul was into building bridges for the gospel. He, he would relate culturally to a group without compromising biblically. And this is what Paul believed that he was doing here by taking and participating in this vow. James goes on to reaffirm the freedom of the gospel to the Gentiles, verse 25. He says, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. James is saying is that we're not trying to lay the law on the Gentiles. We're not trying to put them under some kind of legalistic trip. He's just repeating now the edict that had already been determined by the council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. He's saying the Gentiles are still free to live apart from the law. Then Paul took the men and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. It's going to complete the vow. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, and they laid hands on him. Not for prayer, by the way. No, they laid hands on him. They wanted to arrest him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law in this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now you'll remember that certain Jews had followed Paul on some of his journeys to Galatia, up to Asia. And they had opposed his teaching in their synagogues. We call this group the Judaizers. Well, their home base was in Jerusalem. And when they saw Paul in the temple, it created an uproar. They said, this is the man who teaches the Gentiles to violate the law. You see, the Judaizers were the legalists. And when they saw Paul, it inflamed their passions. They created an uproar, a mob in the temple. You know, it's been said, everywhere Paul went, he either sparked a riot or a revival. Well, in Jerusalem, it was a riot. In fact, verse 29 tells us, For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now the outer court of the temple was accessible to Gentiles. 
It was appropriately called the court of the Gentiles. Why, why not? But above the door leading deeper into the temple were the words, the court of Israel. In fact, a sign hung above the door that entered into the court of Israel that read, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught so doing will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Jews from Ephesus, they recognized Trophimus, and they knew that he was a Gentile. And just because they had seen him with Paul in the streets, they concluded that Paul had taken him into the temple. It was an assumption born out of their prejudice. And they create an uproar. They grab Paul. He brought a Gentile into the temple, so they say, and he deserves to die. You know, it's amazing how quickly worshipers turned into mob violence on that particular day. Amazing. They grabbed Paul. They drug him out of the temple. They were taking him to the valley to stone him. When, now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. Now on the northwest end of the Temple Mount, the Romans had built a fortress, a police precinct. It was there on the Temple Mount in order to keep order, especially on holidays. As many as a thousand troops were sometimes stationed at the fortress of Antonio. On this day, when news arrived that a mob had erupted in the temple, the Romans, they gathered together, they dispatched a garrison to the scene. And they arrived just in the nick of time for the Apostle Paul, verse 32. The commander immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they, the Jews, saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The Romans broke up a lynching. That's what happened. And then the commander came near and took him. He commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked him who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. And so when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him. Hey, the temple. This was an out-of-control situation. The Romans were trying in vain to maintain order, but the commander couldn't even ascertain what the charges were against Paul. It was a mob. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? He replied, Oh, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 400 assassins out into the wilderness? He was surprised that he spoke Greek. He thought he was this Egyptian. Historians tell us that three years earlier, an Egyptian had led 4,000 Jews outside the temple to the Mount of Olives, and he had tried to command the walls of Jerusalem to fall. Of course, when the walls refused to obey, the gullible Jews realized that they'd been duped. This wasn't a Messiah after all. This Egyptian, this false Messiah, narrowly escaped, but the commander mistakes Paul for the Egyptian. He thinks that the villain has returned to the scene of the crime. Paul sets him straight. But Paul said, No, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, 
a citizen of no mean city. In other words, Tarsus was a significant city in the region of Cilicia. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. Now, to me, this is incredible. Notice Paul's poise and purpose under fire. Hey, if this was me and I had just been rescued from a mob, I would say, get me into the barracks. Hey, I want a nice, comfy cell in your barracks. That's where I want to go. If I'd been roughed up by a mob and my life had been threatened, my top priority would have been crawling to safety. I'd be begging for the Romans to lock me up and save me from the bloodthirsty Jews. But not Paul. He went to Jerusalem with the goal to preach the gospel, and he is going to hold on to that purpose, come what may. His goal is to preach, and he's still looking for an opportunity And now he comes to Jerusalem, and he won't be satisfied until he delivers his message. Remember, Paul is blind to everything else except the love and truth of the gospel. And so when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs. The same people now that were about to kill him, he stands on the stairs, and he motioned with his hand to these people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, This is the moment Paul has been waiting for now for 20 years. Remember, he was once one of the temple's officers. He was one of its rabbis. Now he finally gets an opportunity to preach to his former peeps, the temple Jews. He spoke Greek to the Romans, but now he speaks to the Hebrews in their mother tongue. And he begins, Brethren and fathers, Hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, and brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. Now here's Paul's big opportunity. He finally gets to preach to the Jews. But notice, notice the tact that he takes. Rather than expound on the Old Testament prophecies, rather than launch into the Levitical typology, rather than overview God's redemptive plan, no, he resorts to a much more simpler approach. You know what he does? He shares his testimony. His testimony. Paul tells them what happened to him. And this should encourage you and I. You might not know a whole lot about prophecy or typology. Or you might not be able to overview God's redemptive plan. But you know what you can do? You can share your testimony. You can tell people what happened to you the changes Jesus made in your life. You know, people can argue with us about theology or apologetics or history, but they can't deny my testimony. It's what happened to me. I've heard it said, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. Testimonies are convincing and they're powerful. No one can dispute the change that Jesus has made in our lives. We can all share our testimony. 
And that's what Paul chose to do here. Paul says, I'm a Jew. I studied in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. They knew of Gamaliel. He was one of Judaism's greatest rabbis. And Paul had adhered strictly to the law of Moses. In fact, he, had, he was one of the fundamentalists. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He adhered to a strict interpretation of their law. And Paul thought that he was zealous for God, so much so that he says, I persecuted this way. That was his name for Christianity, remember? I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness. And all the counsel of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. In other words, Paul says, I was so zealous for God, I served as the high priest henchman. It was my job to go around and round up all of these believers for punishment. I was that opposed to Christianity. But, Paul got intercepted. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven had shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. Paul thought he was persecuting the church, but guess what? Jesus would take it personally. Did you know that when people persecute you, Jesus takes it personally? You weren't persecuting the church, Jesus says, you were persecuting me. And those who were with me, indeed, they saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. Now before we go further, let me clear up a potential misunderstanding. When Luke records Paul's conversion in Acts 9, verse 7, he says that Paul's companions heard a voice, but they saw no one. Notice here, Paul seems to contradict Luke. Paul says that they didn't hear the voice. What gives? Here's the solution. In Acts 9, the Greek word translated here, it means to hear a noise. To hear a noise, to hear indistinguishable sounds. But in chapter 21, the word here refers to hearing articulated sounds or words. Here's what happened when you put the two verses together. Evidently, Paul's companions, they heard a voice, but they didn't understand what he said. Paul understood, though, that Jesus that he had persecuted was the risen Lord. Verse 10 so I said, what shall I do, Lord? Notice Paul calls Jesus Lord. He's the Lord of life. He obviously has risen from the dead. He's now speaking to Paul on the road. He says, what shall I do, Lord? The word Lord means master, boss. And if Jesus is Lord, and if Paul loves God, then he has no other choice but to bow and obey Jesus. And that's what he does here. And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. Notice Paul's conversion begins with who, and it ends with do. At first he says, Who are you, Lord? Then once he's converted, he asks, What shall I do, Lord? 
And this is how all conversions transition. This is how your conversion needs to transition. When you see Jesus for who he is, you'll want to obey him. You start out with a who, but once you settle that, it now becomes, what do you want me to do, Lord? That's the only appropriate response. Verse 11, And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. You, you remember right after the light had shined, it blinded Paul. For a time he was blind as a bat. But in a spiritual sense, Paul had never seen clearer. He'd gotten his life right with God. He'd accepted Jesus as his Lord. And then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. You know, the last sight Paul had seen were the bright lights, the glory of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Now when the lights come back on, after his blindness, the first sight that he now sees is a faithful servant of the church, Ananias. And then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Paul was baptized in Damascus, but he immediately now wants to return to Jerusalem to witness to his fellow Jews. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. Wow. Paul had rushed back to Jerusalem to witness to the people that he had grown up with, that he had studied with, that he had actually taught and worshipped with in the temple. But when he gets there, he realizes that God has a different plan. God tells him to go, leave Jerusalem, for these people are not going to receive your testimony. And I'm sure Paul was puzzled by this. Think about it. Paul thought like a Jew. He, he knew the Jewish mindset. He was familiar. He understood their customs. Surely they would listen to him, but not so. God would use Paul to reach the Gentiles. Later he would refer to himself as the apostle to the Gentiles. And yet Paul, I don't think he ever fully embraced that role. He, his heart beat for the Jews. He never gave up trying to reach the Jews. He loved them with all his heart. Thus he came back to Jerusalem. That's where he is. That's why he is where he is at the moment. Verse 19, So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death. Remember, Paul had overseen that grisly murder of Stephen. He was the one guarding the clothes of those who were killing him, Paul says. Notice, Paul was the guy who was standing there guarding all, all the warm-up jackets for the men who had wound up and pummeled Stephen with the stones. Paul was there. And he thought for sure that the Jews would listen to one of their own. The Lord had a different plan. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. It's ironic 
where Paul thought he would be most effective, he didn't make a dent. And yet everywhere else Paul went to preach, to preach to the Gentiles, revival broke out. It just goes to prove that relevance and relatability, oh, that's great, but it's worthless if you're not in the will of God. Was Paul right or wrong in going to Jerusalem, in trying to reach the Jews, in taking this Jewish vow? Well, nobody knows for sure. We'll talk more about it next week. And they listened to him until this word. What word? What was the last word he said? Gentiles. They couldn't stand it that God would show his grace and mercy on the Gentiles. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust in the air, and of course these were all Jewish reactions to blasphemy. You know, the rabbis at the time, they taught that the Gentiles were basically created as kindling for the fires of hell. That's why God created them. He created them as starter logs for hellfire. And they considered Paul a heretic for believing that God would save the Gentiles. They tore their clothes. And then the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. Again, the Romans still doesn't have a clue as to what the charges are. Now, the Romans are planning to interrogate Paul. They're going to torture him. And not with waterboarding. No, no. This is going to be more brutal. They're going to interrogate him with the flagellum. They're going to beat him brutally with a cat of nine tails. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? (laughs) Now, Now understand, Paul wasn't afraid to take a beating for Jesus' sake. But Paul was no masochist. He's not going to take a beating unless it's absolutely necessary. And if he can avoid it, then great. And so all of a sudden, he pulls out his trump card. His citizenship. You see, it was against Roman law to scourge a citizen of Rome until he had first been given due process of law. And so when the centurion heard that he was a citizen, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? Paul said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, but I was born a citizen. Hey, the Roman commander had gained his citizenship through a bribe. Paul had been born in Cilicia, a Roman province, and thus had become a citizen by birth. And Paul was not afraid to use his citizenship when it helped his cause. Paul was a shrewd dude. You you recall, Jesus told us to be smart as serpents. Paul was shrewd. It may surprise us all to realize that shrewdness can be a Christian virtue. We need to be smart. Then immediately, those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman because he had bound him. 
He'd already gone overboard with the handcuffs. He's not about to add insult to injury now by beating Paul. And so for the moment, the commander backs off. But he's not done. And that's where we'll pick it up next week in verse 30. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word tonight and for your love for us. We thank you, Lord, for Paul, his example to us. What an incredible, what an incredible man. What passion for Jesus. What courage. That Paul was willing to even die for his Lord's sake. Lord, I, I'm, I'm ashamed to say that so often I lack that courage. I shy away when I should step up. I become timid when I need to be bold. Lord, give me that courage. Fill me, Lord, with the power of the Holy Spirit, just as you did Paul. Help me, Lord, to be blind to all other concerns but Jesus and his love for the lost. Work in our hearts tonight, Lord, as we meditate on these scriptures. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.